All right. Well, I want to welcome everybody, and, and I'm glad you're here. And I want to tell you about our, our pastor that's going to speak to us this morning. He's a school teacher, obviously. He wanted to use it. He said he wanted the biggest desk possible, so he looked more formidable up here. No, actually, Pastor Herb is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I told him a lie. Yeah. He asked for a small table. This is the best we could do. I'm sorry, sir. No, Pastor Herb is uh, actually one of the reasons that we're here in this church, and uh, this is a plant of, of uh, Central Baptist. And one of the reasons here is because a number of us guys had heard uh, Pastor Herb teach more than once in different places, different times, and, uh, and we wanted to, to work on that aspect of multiplying and trying to grow the, the church as the Bible uh, design is set out. And I'll take one kind of little short story about me and Pastor Herb, and he, I don't know that he remembered it necessarily, but he goes all over the world and preaches. One time he was in the Lima airport going this way. We're going the other way. We were on the outside of the building. And one of the guys with us was like, there's Herb Hodges. So we went turned back around and went back in the airport in Lima, Peru, and talked to him for a minute. And he had his, some of his guys following him. And he's like, Hey, uh, Junior, whatever, whatever the guy's name, pray for these guys so we can get going. So anyway, we had a little prayer there. And the thing. He didn't have a lot to say to us right then. I guess he figured we were already ready and it was just time to get moving. But no, he's, he's been a great influence on a, on a number of us. And to hear him preach, it's an honor to have you here, Pastor. And uh, come, come uh, teach us this morning, if you would. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you. It's really hard to get good help these days. I expected a pulpit, but this is the longest one I ever saw. And some churches, you can take up your pulpit and walk, but I'd hate to try to drag this one. Um, if you're, I'm going to sit down. If you're at the back, you probably won't be able to see me, and I've got a rule for you. Just count it all joy. If you can't see me, I'm not worth looking at anyway, so... It's to my advantage you can't see me, but as long as you can hear me, I want you to hear it because I'm confident of a message more than I am of myself. It's good to be here. Uh, he triggered something. I don't, I can't, have, my memory has become what I forget with. And I, he said something, oh yeah, I know what it was. This black preacher was getting ready to preach on Sunday morning. And he started reading the front of the Bible just to find a text and he got to Genesis 3 and it said, Adam, where art thou? And he had his text. So he got up there and said, I'm preaching on Genesis 3-9. Adam, where art thou? And I have three points. Number one, everybody got to be somewhere. Point number two, most people in the wrong place. Point number three, a few closing words about infant baptism. <laughs> like most preacher sermons, the points don't match. They don't line up. I'm in the book of Galatians today. Let me find my text. I think I'm in the book of Galatians today. I know it's in there. I read it once. Um, Galatians chapter 4. Now, this, if you're a Bible student at all, this will be a familiar passage to you. If you're not, it's easy to catch up with even without familiarity. Paul's talking a lot about sainthood in terms of being a child or a son of God. 
And the fourth chapter of Galatians is a kind of climax to his argument, and this passage is probably the apex of his argument. It begins in verse 4. Let me introduce it by verse 3, and then we'll just read verse 4, maybe through verse 7. Verse 3 says, So also when we were children, that means before we came to our majority, our maturity in Christ, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. We were slaves of the principles and the person who is the God of this world. That's before we became God's children. Now mark that. This is true of every person on earth. He's either a child of God or the other part of the formula here. It's true of him. He's a slave. He's a slave of Satan. Jesus said to the Pharisees, mind you, the most religious people who had ever lived, he said, you are right out of your father, the devil. That's birth terms. You have been born right out. This is the Pharisees, mind you. Most religious people who ever lived, most respected people in their community, and Jesus tore them to shreds. He said, you are right out of your father, the devil, and his works you are doing. That's true of every man without Christ. He's born from beneath. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, and I was shapen in iniquity and twistedness. I was shapen like I came down a crooked birth canal. I came out shaped like a snake. Iniquity, that's what the word iniquity means. It's one of the four key words in the Bible for sin. There's sin, there's trespass, there's transgression, and there's iniquity. And all of those are specialized words. There's a seminary education in each one. You ought to be a master of what each one of those means because they define different characteristics of every person without Christ, or they certainly each define one major characteristic of every person without Christ. So this is a big text already. Now listen to this. When, you were when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But, now here's the way our text begins. Thank God, God butted in. Think of that. He's now going to cancel this out. What we just read. All that history of us being slaves of Satan bound to our own sins, incorrigibly lost, bound for hell, next step is hell. On a toboggan slide, slick toboggan slide, it's going to spill out into a lake of fire real soon for that person without Christ. Now, listen to the other side. But when the time had fully come, he's going back quite a distance now, far more than he was to the point he was writing, it was past tense then. It's way past tense now. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Let me read that again. When the time had fully come, I get latched on to this. When the time had fully come, let me give you a clue. There are two Greek words for time. They're worlds apart, and there's an eternity in either of the words. One of them is the word chronos. We get our word chronology from it. It's, it's tick, tick, tick time. 
It's calendar time, watch on your wrist or clock on the wall time. It just moves on steadily and nothing can stop it. They say time waits on no man and only 15 minutes on a woman. I'm just trying to keep you awake. I noticed the men were wide awake. It says, when the time had fully come, and this is not chronos. This is not simply ongoing time. This is the other word, kairos. Kairos, look here, here's ongoing time. It goes like this, kairos is bang. It's God from above, right angles, intersecting time to create a God moment like the day of Pentecost or the day Jesus died or the day he rose again from the dead or the day you were saved. All of those are kairos, they're moments only God can construct. So time goes on, and then God hang, God settles down, and bang, everything changes. Jesus is born, another bang. Jesus is crucified, another big, loud bang. Jesus rises from the dead, the earth splits open. Jesus ascends to heaven, skies split open. These are kairos moments. Well, this is the word that's used here. When the kairos time of God's choosing had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now you're going to have a succession here of theological definitions, seminary descriptions that define this son who came from God. Listen to it. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. This is a purpose clause in order that we, that is, born, people born under the law and now delivered, that we, the exceptional children of God, might receive the full rights of sons. The term is actually might receive the adoption of sons. This is a very technical passage. See, one word would be redemption. One of the definitive words of redemption, like regeneration, is adoption. You ought to immediately ask some questions. If regeneration is the new birth and you're born into the family of God, why would you also have to be adopted? See, this is ganging up on us. If you don't ask the right questions, you're not going to get the right answers. See, you got to, when you face a text like this, don't take anything for granted. Why does it compound regeneration and adoption when they sound like the same thing, but they are not the same thing? He redeemed us that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now that ought to be a clue. See, it would normally say the adoption of children, but that's not what it says. It says the adoption of sons. You say, what difference does that make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. See, a child is an infant. A son is a fully adult child of the father. So you receive adoption rights that put you in adult status with God, but you had to be born into it to get there. So you don't get into rights here. You just become a, a child when you're born. But you become a child with adoption rights, status, position, and everything by this time of your mature, majority, by the time you mature. So all this happens so that you might receive the adoption of sons. Because we are sons... God sent, are you familiar with that? Right up in the beginning it says God sent his son. Now listen to this. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son 
into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, let me translate, dad, dad, father. The word Abba is the Aramaic word for dad, dad. It's an infant talk. Notice this, Abba. How much action here does it say have does it take to have to say father? A lot of it. Lower lip, upper lip, tongue, teeth involved. Put your teeth, put your tongue against one of your teeth, and then spread your lips. Say Abba, or Father. Now Father's a whole lot harder to say than Abba. Abba's just open once, Abba. But Father is is three in one. So the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Dada. In other words, the first thing that happens when a person is born of God is he has an instant release of prayer in him. If you didn't have that, you've never been saved. He immediately cries out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, would someone like to fill that out? We are heirs of God and what? Co-heirs with Christ. Now, get that. When you're in the family, you you become instantly, by your association with Jesus, the owner that everything makes up, that makes up his estate, suddenly becomes yours. You are a joint heir of all the Father's estate that rightly belongs to Christ, and you get it by association of being in Christ. I'm telling you, this is a big text. Now, I'm going to preach an M&M sermon today. So I'm going to just line up a, a, an array of M words to describe this sermon. I want to call it the gospel story or the ideal gospel story. It's the gospel in a paragraph. It's an extended paragraph because you can't get it all in in a word or a line. So let's pick it to pieces. This gospel story is first the story of God's ideal moment in history. Now let me explain that. When the fullness of the time had fully come. Now, the key word here is the word fullness. It's the Greek word pleroma. Let me explain it to you. It's the word that defines a woman's womb, swollen in pregnancy, and now hanging on the age of birth. And these are the dilations of the womb as the baby begins to come out. That's the word that's here. When When time had become like a full womb, dilating, with expectation, uncertainty, hesitation, awareness, it's coming. When it had fully reached its, its apex. So it was God's ideal moment. See, God had developed all previous ages of history like a funnel to focus down on one moment of time. God sent forth, this is the greatest moment up to this time in world history. But get ready, it's not surpassed yet. He's going to surpass it several times in his own brief lifetime. In other words, his crucifixion is bigger than his birth, but without the birth, there could have been no crucifixion. But unquestionably, his birth doesn't save you, his death does. It's bigger than his birth. 
So see, he's saying, when, when history was dilating like a woman's womb, when that was ripe and ready, and the, the baby's ready to stick his head out the, the birth canal, that's when all this happened, when the time like a ripe womb was ready to produce God. Here's the second one. It's the story of God's ideal man. God sent forth his son. Now, if you read your Bible, you'll catch up. You may never have noticed it, but you'll hear it easily if you've read your Bible carefully when I tell you this. There are two common terms that are used in describing and defining the coming of Jesus. Two verbs, and they're very simple verbs. One of them is, and it's a biggie, and neither one of them is small. For God so loved the world that he, what is it? Gave. There's the first word. That's the first descriptive word about how Jesus came. God gave his son. So God is the provider. Jesus is the gift. Love, sacrifice, and eternal salvation are the products of God being the provider and Jesus being the gift. That follows the word gave. But there's another word that's used in defining his coming. It may be bigger than the first one when you start sprawling it out theologically. It's translated like here, God sent, but it's a sort of a compound word. One word can't describe, can't uh, translate it. It's God sent forth. Ah, that changes. God sent forth. That means he came away from God to get here. God sent him away. Actually, let me tell you what the word is and you'll see it. It's the Greek word. You won't understand this, but that's what I'm here for. This word would be indefinable unless somebody explained it. It's a four-syllable word translated sent forth. It's ex apostaline or stalin. Ex is one part. Apo is another one. Stale is another. And the last part is the ending. Four-part word. It means to send. Well, let me explain it to you exactly. Ex. There it is right there on the wall. It's a prefix to exodus or an exit, a way out. An exodus is a going out from leaving one place and going to another destination, originally leaving this place deliberately to get to that other place by way of this. This becomes an exit from here, but it's an entrance into outside. See, every door is both an exit and an entrance, depending on which side you are when the door opens. So ex apostaline, ex means out of. So God sent out of, and then his only begotten son. But that's not all. The next part is apa. This is a preposition that means away from. Now he's going to get definitive. God sent not only out of himself, but deliberately far away from himself. Down past the stars and the planets Jesus came till he grounded himself in the hell of planet earth loaded with our sins to make a correction rescue run here for us. But that's not all. It's away from out of. So God sent his son away from him out of his presence. And the word stalas means to, um, to, 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 to go, to be sent. So God sent forth his son out of heaven and away from himself. I'm, I'm telling you, this, this Bible is some kind of book. 
You're never going to unravel it with one pull. When Paul said to Timothy, son, your mission, and this is your only mission in life till you catch up with this one, is to rightly divide the word of truth. Guess what the word is? Orthotomunto. Ortho means straight, like orthodox, or orthoprax, or orthopedist. They deal with straightening teeth and straightening, straight doctrine, true truth, and straight, straightening crooked feet, things like that. But this word here, ex apostelline, means separation. God, there was a separation placed deliberately by God between him and his son, enlarging all the time in his descent. It means severance. He's severed from his father. It means sacrifice. He went out with the father's pain. The further he took steps away from him, the more the father's hurt, heart hurt because of his absence. This is his beloved son. He's never been away from his right hand, and suddenly he's gone, and he knows what's coming. Notice the object of this verb is a person. He sent forth his son. Now notice when he sent forth means that this son existed before the moment of sending. He was available all the time for eternity. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity, the son of God eternally. Now he's being sent away. This preexistent person is now going away from his father, the preeminent person of the universe and the preeminent other self of God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit, the son deity is now being severed from the other two deliberately to be sent away from them and down and out on Calvary. So Romans 8.32 echoes this when it says, God spared not even his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. And the word sent is an aorist tense verb. It means it doesn't have to happen twice. It's going to happen twice. He's coming back on his own the second time. He doesn't have to be sent. But he was sent once, aorist tense, and that's crisis action. Boy, you believe me. His crisis in the heart of God. It just split him in two, and Jesus came out the entrance. So this is the story of God's ideal man. So we have God's ideal moment, God's ideal man. Let's look at the third one. It's the story of God's ideal method. Look at the third phrase. He's born of a woman. What else is new? Every person's born of a woman. That's obvious. But that's not what this means. The word woman is major emphasis. It means only of a woman. Ah, now you got a difference on hand. Only time in history anybody's ever born without the biological agency of a human father. See, in heaven, Jesus had a father but no mother. On earth, he had a mother but no father. It's some kind of strange person. Born of a woman, peculiarly, only a woman. He was virgin born. Try that one on. You know, this has been the groundswell of, uh, of, of argument for time immemorial. How could anybody be born of a virgin without a man? That was Mary's problem. She knew enough about sex, procreation, that she knew without a man in the picture. An angel said, you're going to bear a son. She said, how can I? I've never known a man and I don't know one today. He said, don't worry about it. That holy thing that will be produced in you will be born of the Holy Spirit. 
See, she had an inside track from the moment she received the message so she could relax the rest of the way home and just say, I don't know how, but it's going to happen. Only a man, only a woman, no man involved. So here you see the real authentic humanity of this person who's born. I mean, he's a real son of man. And yet he's born of a woman. Hebrews 2.14 says it like this. For as much as the children of men are flesh and blood, even so Christ himself took part, became a partaker or co-sharer of the same flesh and blood, that now having a mortal nature capable of dying, he could die, and through his death, he will put death to death. You talk about a walloping, walloping theology. All in one sentence, master that. That's Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. That's the first Christmas message I ever preached, and it'll be the last one if I ever have another opportunity. So there are four distinct births in Galatians 4. Four of them, listen to them. Verses 22 and 23 records the birth of Ishmael, the illegitimate son of Abraham. Verse 23 records the birth of Isaac, the, the legitimate son of Abraham. Verse 4 records the birth of Jesus, both illegitimate in the, use of, in the eyes of men, but the most illegitimate person ever born from a heaven's standpoint. Verse 4, God sent forth his only begotten. You know, in John 3.16, that's not what that means. That's a bad translation. Uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen speaks of Isaac as the only begotten son of Abraham. What's wrong with that? Somebody tell me. Come on, where are my scholars? What's wrong with calling Isaac the only begotten son of Abraham? It's not true. He already had a servant on hand when Isaac was born. But that son was born of the illegitimate handmaid. He got in Egypt when he overshot the land and went against God's will into Egypt. When you go to Egypt, you're always going to bring a Hagar back with you. And you're always going to have an Ishmael out of the loins of that Hagar. So stay out of Egypt. Avoid the place like the plague because you can't go there without overshooting the mark and God will see to it that you have to bring back a Hagar with you. So he got back there. And he, he was of child-producing age. She was of child-bearing age, well past, and they had had no children. So they laughed when God said, she laughed when God said, you're going to have a son. She said, that's no, no way. I, I know biology well enough to know I can't have a son at God's age and at this age. And God laughed at her. He said, don't you, you don't know who you're talking to when you say that. So he put into the loins of Sarah, Abraham's legitimate wife, a child of promise. Now listen, Hagar, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael and he was a son of the flesh. So he wasn't a begotten son of the same gene type as Isaac was. He's the only begotten son of, Isaac, of Abraham of this gene type. That's what that means. When it says Jesus, God loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that is not true if you press it literally. James 1.18 clearly says, of his own will, God begat all of his children by the word of truth. I'm as much a begotten son of God as, as Jesus is. I'm just not the same gene type. See, he was without a father. 
One had a father, no mother. The other had a mother, no father. But they're equal and same. So you see, you need to know how to read these passages or they're going to look like they contradict each other. They don't at all. There are four births here. Ishmael verses 22 and 23, Isaac verse 23, Jesus verse 4, and then there's the new birth, our birth into Christ and into the family of God. We've already read about verses 6 and 7. There are four births here. Four distinct births. Remind me of the guy, I've got it in my notes. These two guys were talking, one of them was Somebody asked, why don't you have any children? You're, you're well past child-producing age, and you don't have a child at all. Why do you have? He's stumbling around trying to explain it. He said, well, my wife is impregnable. And he realized that didn't sound right. He said, no, 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 my wife's inconceivable. He knew that didn't sound right. So he said, my wife's unbearable. Well, I, this is as hard to explain as that. See, there, there are four ways human beings get into existence. As far as I know, you, this exhausts the list. Some are born by, some came in, one came into existence by direct creation. No other agency involved. God made Adam with his own hands. Out of preceding stuff or out of nothing, God created Adam direct. Then the second one is very closely connected. People come into existence through divine construction. He took an, a, a flank out of Adam. The Bible calls it a rib, but it's the word side. He took a side out of Adam and produced another person, a woman, a female, named Eve. And what that means is, unless she's replaced to become one with Adam, he's not a complete person. A part of him's missing. You have to have the woman for it to be the total person, male and female, hey, be made you them. All right, listen to this. The third way is by dynamic conception, the way almost all people in history have come, have come into the world. Cain was born by dynamic conception, Adam and Eve, through sexual intercourse and biological birth. Abel born the same way, Seth born the same way, all the successions of history. They were born in the image of God, then Adam sinned, and they were born in Adam's fallen image, and every person from that day to this is born, not only born, he's born in sin. So he's born by, he's a sinner by birth, choice, conception, in several ways. He can't get out of it without being saved. And then the last one is, at least one was born by divine conception, Jesus. So this is God's ideal method, born of a woman. All right, let's go to number four quickly. I'll be through in just a few minutes. Like a little boy in church. Mother took him to church on Easter. Of course, on Easter, the preacher knows they're not coming back till Christmas. So he preaches to 12.30 and 1, 1.15, 1.30, 2 o'clock, 2.15. About 2.30, this little boy leaned up like a staggering half-dead kid to his mother's breast and said, Mama, what comes after him? She said, Thursday, I think. <laughs> well, I don't want you to think Thursday comes after me. That's too far down the week. I can preach that long, but nobody will listen. So he was, here's the number four, the model. God sent forth the model, the ideal model man. He was made under the law. That means he was born 
with the domain of law imposed over him by the manner in which he was born and by his choice. You can pick the law you want. The Levitical law, Jesus lived under it. Social law, Jesus lived under it. Moral law, Jesus lived under it. He was made under the law. And he kept every precept of the law given by God, legitimately given. He kept it perfectly and even took on himself the penalty of all those lawbreakers when they sinned. He took the penalty of their sins, his death, their death and himself and died as if he were the only sinner who ever existed. That's uh, God's ideal model. Let me give you number five. We're almost through. That's good news to some of you. I don't think there's much on TV this afternoon, so you can relax a few more minutes. Here's point five. This is a story of God's ideal motive. Why did he do all this? Boy, this passage is, praise God, clear. In order that, that's a purpose clause. This is the purpose for which he did all of this. In order that he might redeem us who were slaves of sin on the slave market of sin. He came in to buy us out and purchase us off that slave market, out of sin, and take us out and set us free. To redeem us and to give us the adoption of sons. So our salvation involves a radical purchase at incredibly horrible price. So the question is, are you worth it? Well, no. Am I worth it? Are you kidding me? They spend Jesus for me? Well, did God waste Jesus? No. See, when he purchased me, he conferred his value upon me. This wasn't half-balanced purchase. This is co-equal in his view. I said, but I'm not equal to Jesus. He said, I'm not requiring you to be. I'm going to take care of that. You trust me and I'll make you like my son, so I'll fill heaven with the populace of people made in his likeness. Ooh, that's good news. I ain't going to have to be me much longer. I won't be like Christ forever. I've been redeemed. But listen to this. That word redeemed is an aorist tense verb. It took place, wham, like that. It's over. Long since done. I purchased, paid for, possessed. I'm off the market. I don't belong to anybody else anymore. Just God. It's a middle voice verb. Here's what that means. When God acted to redeem, the middle voice means it acts out through the, the verb acts out through the action, but it's designed to come back and benefit to the one who acted. So God didn't redeem you for your sake first. He redeemed you for his sake. How well you do it. Are you living for your sake or his sake? Even as a Christian, be careful. He didn't redeem you for you to live any degree for yourself. You're free of that. He redeemed you to set you free of all this self-attentiveness and flesh deliverance all the time. No, no, no. He delivered you so he could possess you lock, stock, and barrel, no questions asked. If he closes his hand on you, kills you today, don't complain. You just go to, get to, go to heaven early. And he saved you for the adoption of sons. Now let me explain why that adoption is there. See, birth makes you a newborn infant. Adoption is quite different. It installs you as a full-grown adult. See, an infant doesn't have adult responsibilities or privileges. He's a baby. He has to be grown up to get all these things. But a person who's adopted, 
the moment he's born has these privileges and responsibilities from the moment he's saved and that's every Christian. See, you are as responsible today as if you were a full-grown Apostle Paul. You're born that way. How you doing? Is God getting back his dividend? You've got to be kidding me with that price. I said, do you mean to tell me God paid Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, to buy, excuse me, me? Is God a fool? No, here's what he did. He said, this is my son. I'm going to pay the price to confer the value of my son upon him. And then once he comes to grips with this, I'm going to climb inside and begin to work on him to make him like my Christ, like my son, to justify my investment and get the right dividend out of it. This is some kind of gospel. I got one more point. This is the story of God's ideal miracle. He sent forth his son. And then it says, and he sent forth the spirit. See, the send forth of his son is historical objective foundation. The sending forth of the spirit in your heart is subjective experiential foundation. You can know all about the first one and never experience the second one. You cannot experience the second one without knowing something about the first one. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have to know something about it. You have to know enough about that person and then what happened with him to know how you can be saved. And here's the way the Bible closes this, Romans 8, 9. If any man has not the spirit of God, he does not belong to him. That's clear as a bell. Let me give you a closing illustration. Some of you, give me two of them, I'll give you two of them. One of them happened in the church I was pastor of. We were given a Christmas uh, cantata one Sunday night, very close to Christmas. It was a Christmas play with music. It was in December of 1979. That was my last pastor. Last, second to last year, my last pastor. I left the pastor in 1980. And the cast, the movement, all fully dressed, everything, had already gathered. It's time to start. The crowd was already in their seats, but there was one person missing. And a car rolled up to the curb. Usher went out and opened the door, and a young woman jumped out breathless and said, excuse me, sir, don't stop me. We've got to be inside. She was carrying the baby Jesus. Here's what she said, excuse me, sir, let us in. Baby Jesus is late. When they told me that story, I said, you can correct that one. He's never been late. One black woman said, God is the great all-time, on-time God. He always does things according to his schedule. He's never late. Let me give you the other one. Does anyone here remember the old Marvin comic it's a one-frame comic in the comic strip part of the newspaper years ago. He's obsolete now. Nobody will remember him unless you just remember. He was pretty vivid. Some of his single frames are masterpieces. Here's one of them. He's with his mother in the picture, and she's reading the Christmas story to him. There's a big thought bubble that's formed up above his head, and you can read it. Nobody else can read it. Here's what it says. Let me see if I understand this. You mean Jesus had the birthday and I get the presents? <laughs> Hear that carefully. Jesus had the birthday 
and I get the presence. Now he meant one thing. Let's redefine the word. Let's mis let's dispel, misspell, correctly spell the word presence. Jesus had the birthday, and we get the capital P R E S E N C E, and he ain't going nowhere else ever again. He's with us all the days, even to the ends of the earth. What about you? Here's the question here today. I'm glad you're here, but that doesn't settle anything except your responsibility. See, there's no merit in coming to church. People think they're chalking up brownie points. Ain't no brownie points to come to church. You're commanded to come. It's not an option. Don't forsake the assembling yourself together. You're just obeying a command. There's no formal brownie points that come. You don't get anything from heaven by going to church. You just happen to get into the place where God raises the dead. He don't do it outside in the field normally. Does it in buildings like this? Designed to be devoted to things like this. And there somehow people quiver out of death into life as the Holy Ghost comes in, pinpoints one. <laughs> I remember when I was saved, I couldn't raise my face. I was not, for nine months, I was under such conviction, I was afraid I would see God. I wouldn't look up. And then a, boy, a man told me how to be saved, and I was like the ripe fruit. I was saved on my 18th birthday. I like that. People say, how old are you? I say, let them guess. I say, well, I'm 18 years younger than you guess. Because the old man God killed and buried and put away, he's gone. God never sees him again. So I'm only the new man in Christ. I'm 18 years younger than I look. Anybody here today aware that you desperately need to be saved? See, I could beg you to be saved, but you ought to be begging God to save you. I could run to you, but you ought to run to God. If you knew the, you'd want to be in his arms before an invitation started because Jesus' coming is imminent. He could break the skies and pull this building wide open and evacuate every Christian before you ever move out of your seat. What would you do then? But you can settle that now. See, a wise man will not gamble with eternity. You tell me you're going to gamble with going to hell by waiting one more day? Well, God's liable to say, okay, you gamble's up. Why wouldn't you be saved the moment you become aware of it and the time when you're aware of it? Don't say, well, I've got to think about this. What else is there to think about? Say, I've got to do something about my life first. What are you going to do? You can't correct anything. Just receive him, respond to him. Here's what he said. Whoever will confess me before men, and the word confess is to agree with God about what he says about Jesus. It's the word homologesso, homo the same, logesso to say. God says, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. When your heart says, I agree. Well, I want Jesus, the well-pleasing son of God, and he'll transform me into his likeness. He'll say to you, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. And, and, and then after that, you can begin to court other people sharing the same gospel. And you don't have to be perfect at it. Don't worry about that. God will override your imperfections. You say one sentence of gospel, just like that boy did on the side of the swimming pool for me that day. Spoke one sentence. I'm a Christian today. Nine months later, I was in a prayer meeting in his house. I told him that. He didn't even remember saying it to me. I told him, you're going to be one shot dude when we get to heaven. Because I expect to impact as many people as I can reach for the rest of my life, and they're all going to line up behind you when we get. 
He led me to Christ. They're going to line up behind me, and thus they're going to, they're going to call him Bob Binding. And he'll step up there real ashamed. They'll call his name. He'll say, I'm just, me, I'm, sir, I'm just Bob Binding. God said, you think so? Turn around and look behind you. Say, who are all those people? They're your converts. Excuse me, sir, I didn't do anything. Oh, beg your pardon. You got the right one. Oh, you have to have. Be faithful. And if you'll do it right, God will always put a Moses in your downline several generations away. And then it floods the world. And you get the, you get the rewards for all that you did in one little thing. Who would like to be saved today? What do you got to do? Admit that you are an outright, inright, upright, satanic-like sinner. I am no better than Satan. I'm doing exactly what Satan did to make himself Satan. I just rejected God. I just haven't accommodated Jesus. That's what made Satan Satan. He said, I want to be God. I don't want somebody taking my place when I'm second place and could have number one, so move over, God. I'm going to take over. God said, no, you think you're going to rise up to heaven. You got the, you're on the wrong elevator. You're going down to the pit of hell. Repent of your sins. Confess them directly to God. Turn away from them as well as you know how to do. And trust him to help you in all the prospect, project of it. Then Jesus said, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If any person hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. He's more eager to come into you than you are to get him inside. So you open the door and he'll do the rest. He'll come in. He'll give you the gift of eternal life. He'll give you the assurance of eternal life. He'll change your life forever. He'll begin to make you like Christ. Is that a bargain? Look at what you are now and compare it to that and see if you want to stay like this when you're in eternity, when you can be like this to get there, and it may be the day you enter. So I'd want to sponsor today to be sure it's guaranteed, and it'll be guaranteed forever the moment you open the door. How many would like to be saved today? Right, we're going to move out of this place and clear this place in just a minute. A pastor or somebody designed to assigned to receive you will be here to receive you when you come. Step down the aisle and just groan out what you're coming from. I want to be saved. I need to be saved. I'm coming to trust Jesus. Just put it in very simple terms. He will understand and do whatever God tells you to do. You can't miss doing that. Don't listen to me. Listen to him. He'll be clear with you. He'll tell you what to do. But he's telling you to come. That's his constant invitation. He hadn't changed it today. He's telling you to get out of where you are and come to where you should be right now. So I want to invite you to come. My sermons are like sausages. You can cut them off anywhere, eat from either end. They'll still make you sick to your stomach. But I'm through. That was okay, wasn't it? <laughs> Crazy. Hey, you're right, it was good. I know, I'm not guessing. <laughs> and I love you.